Okay, gang, good morning, church. Uh, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter 1, all right? James chapter 1. I appreciate it when John prays like that because it's a reminder to all of us um, that there are two celebrations in any worship service. Uh, there are two kinds of songs. There are uh, two kinds of messages. Uh, for instance, one side is all about what he prayed. It's all about my gaining acceptance before a holy God based not on my merit, not on how I've done, but solely upon the merit of Jesus Christ, his shed blood on the cross, his subsequent resurrection, proving himself powerful over sin, death, and the grave. And I embrace that truth, that reality, in authentic faith. That's what gets me into God's good graces. But the other kind, and many of the messages that I share on Sundays, like the one today, have nothing to do with getting into God's good graces, because we don't get into God's good graces based upon how well we manage our lives. Jesus takes care of that for us, so long as our faith in him is authentic. But a message like today, and the second in a series of messages entitled Step Up, is a message designed to help you guide your marriage and relationship in the right direction that you might reap all the blessing and benefit from doing so. If you do what I'm challenging you to do today, which is be faithful, that doesn't gain you more acceptance in the eyes of God, but it will bless your home, your children, your wife, your husband, even your church. As I said two weeks ago, we opened up a brand new series of messages entitled Step Up. What would our lives be like if we all just decided on Monday morning at 8 o'clock, we're all going to step up? Uh, what if all of your employees on Monday morning walked in and, and they decided collectively, we're going to step it up today? What kind of company could you build? What kind of churches would we know in our community if everyone decided, look, I'm just going to step it up? And today, what kind of homes might we enjoy what kind of marriages might we know? What kind of families could we build if husbands and wives decided to step it up? You know, the Bible is filled with examples of ordinary men and women, just like you and me. God comes to them and says, look, I want you to step it up. And most of the time they did. Listen, the story of the Old Testament, the narrative of the New Testament would read dramatically differently if when God went to someone like Moses and said, Moses, I need you to step up, Moses said, up, no thanks. If, if men like Joshua, David, women like Ruth and Esther and Rahab uh, in the New Testament, Peter, James, John, Paul, Mary, Martha, if God went to these individuals and said, I need you to step up, and collectively they said, nope, sorry, too busy, too distracted, I've got other priorities going on in my life, the Bible would read very, very differently. The fact is, God has always been looking for men and women to step up, to step up. One of the saddest passages in all the Bible comes from Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 30. This is God speaking here. God said, I looked for someone who would build up the wall, stand in the gap, but I found no one. That's like saying, I searched for someone to step up, but I could find anybody. Look, church, I want you to know that when you step up, your home's going to thrive. When you step up, our churches are going to grow. When you step up, our communities are going to be blessed. Our nation 
will prosper. So today and during this series, that's exactly what I'm challenging you to do. Just step up. I hope to show you why stepping up is one of the most valuable things you could ever give those around you. One of the best moves you could ever make. Now, last time we opened up the series with the idea of responsibility. Take responsibility as a means of stepping up. You know, in the very beginning, God gave mankind enormous responsibility and only one rule. And the farther we have drifted as a society in culture away from that paradigm, the more rules, laws, regulations it requires just to keep us in line, just to keep us together. It has now become the norm to expect irresponsibility from those around us rather than responsibility. You see, remember Galatians chapter 6? We examined it last time. The Bible teaches that you can't pull a fast one on God. You might as well take responsibility because of the sowing and reaping principle. All of us need to accept that we are who we are and we are where we are because we have sown and reaped our way to now. You see, yeah, you could blame mom and dad maybe, or you could blame, you know, the boss, or you could blame, you know, culture, or you could blame the church, or you could blame any number of people and things, but you need to accept part of taking responsibility is accepting the fact that I have sown and reaped my way to where I am today. One of the smartest moves you could make is to walk out of here today and say, you know what I'm going to start doing? I'm going to start doing what I should have been doing all along. I'm going to start sowing what I wish I had sown early on because the promise comes with a blessing. Don't be weary in doing well because at the proper time, you're going to reap a harvest. This time, we're going to talk about the subject of fidelity in marriage. Fidelity in marriage. America and American culture, I'm sad to report, is not faithful in marriage. As we examine this area of marital unfaithfulness, of infidelity, I want you to ask yourself, can a couple in today's toxic culture remain faithful to one another in a committed, loyal, and loving relationships? Now, there are a myriad of statistics out there regarding infidelity in America, and the numbers are wide-ranging, okay? Uh, I believe some of those numbers are pumped up because they're trying to make another argument or build another uh, argument or reach another end. Uh, but in a conservative way, last week, I kind of examined a handful of websites and, and examined a handful of, of statistical uh, spreadsheets. And here's what I found out. In America, 41% of those in married relationships have committed either physical or emotional infidelity. 41%. That's a big number. That's a big number. Now, maybe it's only 31%. Then again, maybe it's 51%. The numbers are, again, wide-ranging. I also found out that the average length of an affair is two years in America. Two years before you get caught and everything blows up. Two years before you just get tired of it all and confess, confess up. But the most troubling statistic I ran into this past week is the last one. If I guaranteed that you'd never be caught, according to information out there, 74% of men say, yeah, I'd cheat. And 68% of women say, I'd do the same. Think about that. Three out of four men and seven out of 10 women say, if you remove the consequences, 
if you guarantee I'll never experience the negative outcome, then yeah, I'd cheat. Comedian Chris Rock, he has this whole bit he does on faithfulness, infidelity in marriage in America. And he says that men are only as faithful as their options. Now, I hope he's wrong. I pray he's wrong. But I fear there's some truth to his words. What he's saying there is, if the right person or the right set of circumstances present themselves, according to the research, 68% of men would take that chance. 68% of women would take that chance. Here's what Proverbs chapter 9 says. The context of Proverbs 9 is a, a wise father is trying to communicate the virtue, the ethic of marital faithfulness. And he says, infidelity will tell you, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that our guests are in the depths of the grave. Now listen, I'm not so pious. I'm not so religious as to stand here and pretend that stolen water isn't sweet, because it is. Food eaten in secret, pretty tasty, right? I'm not going to tell you that an extramarital affair isn't exciting, because it is. It can be thrilling for a time. I'm not even going to argue with you that at least in the short term, it may feel more fulfilling than a committed, lasting relationship. The Bible says so. Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. Look, here's what I can guarantee you 100%. In this auditorium right now, there are men and women who have either failed in their marriage and are trying to recover, are in the midst of an extramarital affair even as I speak, or are trying to pick up the pieces from a marital failure, that of infidelity. You see, the reality is this. If you are personally, individually, just in your thought life, you're sitting here right now and you're wondering, how does he know what I'm thinking? <laughs> if you're turning the wheels in your mind, considering infidelity, I want to prepare you for what you're about to face. Okay? A couple of quick things. Number one. Be prepared to live with confusion and compromise. Is this right? Is it wrong? It feels right, but then again, I'm sickened by it. Truth is going to be turned upside down. You're not going to know right from wrong. You're not going to know truth from a lie. You're not going to know up from down. So if you're planning to be unfaithful to your marriage commitment, you need to be prepared to live with confusion and compromise. Because on the one hand, it's going to feel so good. Stolen water is sweet. But on the other hand, it's going to feel so very low. Here's one of my favorites. You need to be prepared to play the happy card, okay? If you're going to cheat in your marriage, you need to be prepared to play the happy card. What's that mean? That means you need to convince yourself that being happy is the number one goal of existing on planet Earth, okay? To play the happy card means to believe that, well, God just wants me to be happy, the whole reason God loves me is so I can be happy. Listen, church, too many people think that happiness is the goal in life. Happiness is not the goal. Oh, I just want to be happy. Don't we all? Then set your life up in such a way so as to 
reap the happiness. It's just that simple. Happiness is not the outcome. It's not the goal. Happiness is the result of skillful life management. So if you plan to cheat, be prepared to put all your eggs in the happiness basket. Here's number three. Be prepared to lie your socks off. Okay? If you're going to cheat, you better get up early. You better do your exercises. You better drink your orange juice, eat your brain food, because you're going to need it. It is going to get so difficult and dark trying to keep the story straight, trying to cover your bases, trying to remember what you told the buddy at work versus what you told your wife's girlfriend. You better be prepared to lie your socks off. Okay? Here's number four. Be prepared to find new friends, because guess what? If your friends truly love you, they're not going to approve of what you're doing, okay? And listen, they won't ostracize you if they love you. You'll feel forced to ostracize them because they disapprove of what you're doing. The best thing you can do if you're going to cheat is to go find someone else who's cheating. Become buddies with someone in the same situation. You see, the key to this whole thing is rationalization, okay? Here's number five. Be prepared to live with regret. Listen, I can promise you, in 30-plus years of ministry history and experience, it's not going to be different for you. It's not. You're going to reap what you've sown just like everyone else that's walked that road is reaping what they've sown. The price that others are paying is going to be the same price that you're forced to pay. Because remember, Galatians 6, you can't mock God. You can't outsmart God. So here's what we're going to do today. Beginning in James chapter 1, I want to reveal to you the process of temptation and how we stumble into it. After I teach you what James has to say regarding the process of temptation, we're going to go back to Genesis 39 and get an excellent case study on a young man by the name of Joseph who faced the temptation and conquered it. Okay, so if you brought your Bible, go to James 1, and let's read together, beginning in verse 13. James writes, when you're tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Okay, okay, now stop. I, I don't think that many of us think when we're tempted that it's God pulling the, the, the strings. I, I don't think many of us think that it's God tempting us, but here's the mistake we do make. We assume that if God loves us, he'll remove the temptation. God, this would be a whole lot easier if you just remove the temptation. God, if you really loved me, if you were real, why am I investing so much in this personal faith walk of ours if you're not going to remove the very thing that could cripple my marriage? James says, don't even go down that road. If you're tempted, don't blame it on God. Why? For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God is incapable of succumbing to temptation. Why? Because God is holy. If God were not holy, but just righteous, just, faithful, gracious, merciful, loving, kind, he could. It is the fact that God is holy that demonstrates he cannot succumb to the temptation. A lot of people ask me, in Matthew chapter 4, when the enemy tempted Jesus, could he have sinned that day? And the answer is simple, but 
complex at the same time. Because Jesus was both God and man, because Jesus was human, yeah, he could have sinned. But because he was God in his deity, he would not. You see, that's what James is getting to in chapter 1 and verse 14. Don't blame it on God. God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone else. Now, watch verse 14, because in verse 14, James reveals how this whole process works. James writes, each person is tempted. I'm going to tell you how this works. When they're dragged away, not by God, not by the devil, watch, by their own evil desire. And what's that next word? Enticed. Okay. Now, this is interesting. Believe it or not, in the original Greek language in which the New Testament was penned, verse 14 contains fishermen's terminology. Okay. In verse 14, when we read the words dragged away, enticed, you know what they literally mean? They mean to catch with bait. Okay. So picture this for a moment. James is saying the way this happens is we all have an evil desire. See, that's not because I'm an evil person. That's because I'm a fallen human being. That's because I'm a depraved individual. You see, when God originally created mankind, they were perfect. When they chose their way over God's, the Bible says in Genesis 3, the universe fell from its original perfection. And since then, Romans chapter 5, because I'm a child of Adam, I possess that same sin nature. So the evil desire is already in there. And then comes the temptation. And I can't resist. And so I bite, I take, I do. And then I'm dragged away because I've been enticed by the bait. See, imagine that big, fat, large-mouth bass underneath the safety and security of that big log on the bottom of the pond or the lake. And her belly is full because that very morning she snatched a big toad off the surface of the water. She's fanning her, bed, her eggs on her bed. She's got responsibility to care for her little ones, her eggs, her spawn. She's not hungry at all, but here it comes. Right? It's a worm. It, it's, a, it's a crankbait. It's some kind of topwater pop bait or something like that. She's full. She's plenty satisfied. She's got work to do, but man, that is enticing. So what happens? She takes the bait. Now what happens? She's in a fight for her life. James says that's exactly how it happens to you and me. Look, don't make the mistake of beating yourself up because of the evil desire. See? Evil desires are not sin. Did you hear me, church? They're only evidence that I'm a sinner. See? Having the thought, having the desire is not sin. Acting on the thought, acting on the desire, giving in to the temptation is Keep reading. Verse 15, then, after desire has conceived, how does it conceive? We take the bait. It gives birth to sin. That's when it becomes sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. 
my depravity produces the desire, and my desire takes the bait, and now I'm in a battle for my life. So I thought about this passage, and I wanted to kind of summarize it for you. So let's start with depravity. This is what I explained a moment ago. It begins with desire. The, the desire is natural. The desire is human. But the long comes the temptation. And if I take the bait, I'm guaranteed a negative outcome. But the Bible offers a remedy to our depravity. It's called sanctification. That's one of those big doctrinal words that proves I'm educated, just so you know. <laughs> sanctification is that process whereby God doesn't cover or remove my depravity, but he compensates for it, you see? Sanctification is that process whereby God enables me to overcome the temptation to the point that it's no longer tempting. Look, sanctification is why there were certain, certain things that were a struggle for me in my 20s that were no longer a struggle in my 30s. And certain things became a struggle in my 30s that were no longer a struggle in my 40s. And certain things were a struggle in my 40s that are no longer a struggle in my 50s. What's happening there? Is my depravity diminishing? No, it's being covered. It's being compensated for by God's work of sanctification. You see, and the secret of sanctification is understanding that the battle is won or lost in the temptation stage. See, I can't change my nature. I can't change my desires. If I'm hungry and you put a double-decker pizza in front of me, I'm going to want to eat it. Okay? If you tempt me, the desire will be there because I'm a depraved, fallen human being, only acceptable in the eyes of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. However, if I'm smart enough to know that the battle is won or lost in the temptation stage, the process of sanctification has already begun to work. Look, you can overcome any and every temptation. The Bible actually says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, there is no temptation, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 13. There is no temptation that's ever come upon you, but such as is common to everyone else. But God is always faithful to give you a way to avoid falling into the trap. Read it for yourself. Look, what I want to show you now from Genesis chapter 39 is an example of somebody who handled their temptation the right way. Now, I realize in this postmodern age in which we live, sometimes it's politically incorrect for me to say that's right and that's wrong. Sometimes it's politically incorrect for me to say this is truth and that is false. This is right and that is wrong. But Joseph stood for a conviction based not upon the potential for a negative outcome. He stood on a conviction based upon what he knew to be right and what he knew to be wrong. Now, if you know the story of Joseph, you know how it goes. The latter chapters in the book of Genesis are all devoted to this one young man. Joseph was uh, rejected by his siblings. His brothers didn't like him because he was his father's favorite. So they sold him into slavery. They faked his death, sold him into bondage. He became a slave in Egypt, and he was bought, he was purchased by a man named Potiphar, a powerful man in the Egyptian government. Look at chapter 39 and verse 2. The Bible says the Lord was with Joseph and so he prospered. Now stop for a minute because if you know this story, you know how often that very phrase appears in the narrative of Joseph. 
And God was with Joseph and he prospered. And God was with Joseph and he prospered. And the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. Okay? Uh, understand that the Bible goes to great lengths to hammer home this point. Why was God with Joseph and why did he prosper? That's what I want to show you. Keep reading. He lived in the house of the Egyptian master, verse 3. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar, that was the master's name, put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Now, understand, this was an enormous responsibility. Joseph would have been in charge of everything. Joseph would have paid the bills. He would have managed the household staff. He would have taken care of the yard crew. He would have managed the, the master's calendar and scheduled his events. Joseph is in charge of everything. That's one of the ways that God smiled on Joseph, blessed him, and he prospered. But look, don't misunderstand, church. It wasn't because Joseph was a good little boy and he believed, and so God gave him the blessing. No, Joseph was probably a good worker. Joseph was probably diligent. Joseph was probably conscientious. See, I, I really get tired of church people who think just because I go to church on Sundays, God ought to be pouring out the good stuff. Meanwhile, I'm lazy. Meanwhile, I, I'm irresponsible. Meanwhile, I lack self-discipline. No, Joseph was all of those. He was, uh, had a strong work ethic. And because God was with him, he blessed him. Now he's in charge of everything. Verse 5. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. Isn't that interesting? I told you last time that your irresponsibility will one day become someone else's responsibility because you can't be irresponsible and it affect no one you love. Well, guess what? It works in reverse. Be responsible. Commit to the right thing. And God pours out the blessing on you, and it touches those around you. Keep reading. Verse 6. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. I told you Joseph was just like all the rest of us. A lot of well-built, handsome men in this room right now. <clears throat> Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, verse 7. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph, and he said, she said, come to bed with me. Stolen water is sweet. It's exciting. Verse 8, but Joseph refused. Why, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than am I. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. Now watch what he says next. He's about to explain why he feels that way. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Not, I'm worried he'll come home early from work and catch us in the act. That's not what he said. Not, I don't want to let down people around me because this is one day going to blow up in our face and I don't want to pay the negative consequences. No. He said, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? How could I do it? Verse 10. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. 
Why did Joseph turn down the advances, overcome the temptation coming from Potiphar's wife? Wasn't because he feared the negative outcomes. It was because he saw clearly the difference between faithful and unfaithful, right and wrong. Now, if you know how the story goes, I need to remind you of something pretty important. Here it is. Don't assume that doing right always yields immediate blessing because it didn't for Joseph. He did the right thing in chapter 39, and believe me, he wasn't blessed in chapter 40. Okay? In fact, if you know the story, Potiphar just kept on him and on him and on him. Finally, when he rebuked her and, he, and he, he, he stopped her advances, you know what she did? She lied to her husband about him and accused him of it anyway. And he wound up going to jail. But you know what the scripture says? Even in jail, here it comes, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. He was advanced again and again and again until by the end of the book, guess who is in charge of all of Egypt? Second only to Pharaoh, it's Joseph. Again, not because he feared a negative outcome or no one could guarantee him that no one will ever know, but simply because of an ethical, moral commitment to what was right. Now, I'm going to close this message in a little bit of a sarcastic way. <clears throat> Please forgive me if this offends you, but if anything I've said today so far hadn't hit the mark, then I'm just going to tell you, go ahead and do it. In fact, I'll close by telling you how to have an affair, okay? I've been at this for a long time, and I have learned a great deal about how this whole thing works. So if you're teetering on the edge and Joseph, James, or Pastor Mike mean nothing to you, then here it is, how to have an affair. Number one, you've got to convince yourself that it can't happen to you. That's where we begin. Whether you've done it or not, you first got to convince yourself, well, that happens to other people, you know? Uh, uh, infidelity is some sort of respecter of persons, you know, educated, uneducated, wealthy, uh, you know, poor, uh, spiritual, biblical knowledge uh, versus ignorance. Uh, no, go ahead first and convince yourself it can't happen to me. You're not like those other people, okay? That's number one. Here's number two. You got to convince yourself that the flame is gone, Okay. You've been married two years. You've been married seven years. You've been married 21 years. The flame is gone. Let's be honest with ourselves. We both know it. The flame is gone. Now, to really commit yourself to this belief, you have to buy into the myth of chemistry. Okay? It's one of the grossest injustices to couples in American culture is this myth of chemistry. E-Harmony is built on the myth of chemistry. Match.com is built on the myth of chemistry. If we can match you scientifically with your soulmate, you can ride that wave of romance into your golden years because you found the right person. The Bible says it's not about finding the right person, chemistry. It's about being the right person. See? So buy into that myth. The flame is gone. Number two, go ahead and begin to cultivate this extramarital relationship, okay? If you want to do it, you, want, you need to do it right. So go ahead and begin to kind of groom this extramarital relationship. You're going to want to run into this person as often as possible, okay? Whether it's at work or at the gym, uh, at church, uh, maybe at a restaurant. Uh, when you see them, you're going to want to kind of, kind of say things like, all the good ones are taken, 
you're going to say, man, if only you weren't married. See, that's going to make them feel good about themselves, and it's going to give you some sort of idea if this has any future, okay? So go ahead and begin to cultivate the extramarital relationship. Uh, in order to really do this right, you need to buy into another myth, okay? You need to buy into the myth that there's something special about her or there's something special about him. See? Now, totally ignore the fact that naturally we're attracted to members of the opposite sex. Just totally ignore that, okay? Keep calling her special, all right? Totally ignore the fact that you felt the exact same way four years ago when you met your wife. Totally ignore that, okay? Because you want to buy into the myth that they're one in a million. There's something special about that person. When you're all by yourself, think about what it'd be like to be alone with them. Think about what it'd be like to get out of town where you didn't have to hide. Maybe the beach or the mountains. You could be together. You could explore the boundaries of your love. Men, when you're alone, think about what she'd be like in bed. Think about how the two of you would be together. See? When you get a chance, say something to her like, I have, say the most intimate, share the most intimate detail you can with her about you or maybe your marriage, because that's going to create like counterfeit intimacy. She's going to think, she's going to know you don't tell that to the guys at work. Uh, you don't talk like this at the office. So there's something special, the bond that you have. Uh, the next one, this is one of my favorites. Compare your spouse to that other person. Okay. This always works. Okay. Because what you're doing is you're comparing everything you know about her after 12 years to everything you know about the other after 12 minutes. You're comparing everything you know, everything you've experienced with him to everything you've never experienced with him. So compare your spouse to that other person. And then finally, connect intimately through sex. Congratulations, you're an adulterer. <laughs> How's that feel? How's that working for you? Now listen, don't misunderstand. If you failed in your marriage relationship and you're trying to put it back together, it's not my goal to make you feel uncomfortable today. It's my goal to make you feel uncomfortable three years ago before you did it. That's what I'm doing now. See? Ask yourself, what kind of person do I want to be? Is it right to stay true and loyal? Is it wrong to commit adultery? And when you leave here today, remember, remember, church, that battle is won and lost in the temptation stage. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to ask you to do something. If you don't mind doing it, play along. If you're sitting next to your wife or your husband, go ahead and take their hand, okay? In a moment, I'm going to pray for both of you, okay? Not trying to make anybody feel uncomfortable. Actually, quite the opposite. I want you to leave here knowing that your spouse is committed to a lasting, loyal, loving relationship. So men, when I pray on behalf of men, if you agree with what I'm saying, just, just give your wife's hand a squeeze. Okay, Ladies, when I pray on your behalf, if you agree with what I'm praying, go ahead and squeeze your husband's hand. Here we go.
Father, look at these men. They are men. Father, they are driven. They are motivated to be successful. Father, they are, they are motivated by challenge. And God, they're motivated by love. As men, we will do almost anything to win the love of our maiden. But Father, we're also depraved. And we also have evil thoughts and desires that go through our minds that are way out of bounds. Father, that doesn't make us a failure. That makes us a sinner. So God, help us as men commit today to the good, loving, honorable, loyal commitment that we made to our wife these years ago. Make us loyal, loving men of faith, committed to the moral belief, the ethical commitment that right is right and wrong is wrong. God, make us better husbands, I pray. Father, look at all these wives. Father, give them selective hearing, selective vision, knowing that we are, as husbands, we are far from perfect. Our goals are typically much higher than our reality. We shoot way beyond our means, typically. But Father, might they recognize that we love them, that we love them sacrificially, dearly. And as wives, Father, may, may we let them know by word or deed, action or whatever, that we too are committed to a loving and loyal and lasting committed relationship. Father, make the wives every bit as stubbornly determined as their men are to do what's right in the home. Father, if you would just help us simplify our lives to what's right, what's wrong, what's helpful, what's hurtful when it comes to our marriages, life would be so much better. Help us see it. Help us go after it. And more than anything, Father, convince every one of us that the battle is won or lost not with the desire, not with the outcome, certainly, but in the middle there with the temptation and show us that we can overcome it. I pray these things because we love you. We thank you for loving us. I pray these things in the name of your son because we need him to guide us and show us the way. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you today. I mean that when I say that. Remember, membership class starts in about five minutes in the community room. I'll see you next time.